I think one of the most remarkable statements in the entire Bible on prayer is given by our Lord in Mark chapter 11 and verse 22. There you remember that Jesus pronounced a curse on the fig tree. And once he pronounced that curse, do you remember the, the tree just withered? And it was Peter who inquired as to how this happened. And Jesus answered and said to them, Have faith in God. And he said, Truly as I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted to him. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them, and they shall be granted to you. I mean, what an incredible promise. Faith in that passage is able to move mountains by the power that God gives to the person who puts their full trust in God. Obviously, our Lord Jesus Christ is speaking in hyperbole there. The disciples did not move any mountain. And for that matter, Jesus did not move any mountain. But he's addressing the issue of the, imposs- the possibilities of prayer that namely nothing is impossible with God. I say hyperbole because it'd be like Jesus saying that it's easier for a camel to go through what? the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into heaven. He's not talking about a literal camel going through the eye of the needle any more than he's talking about moving a mountain. But he is establishing the fact that faith will bring out the omnipotence of God. Therefore, Jesus said, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they shall be granted to you. On another occasion... The disciples were unable to exercise a demon, if you can imagine that, from a very young boy. They sought to, but they could not do it. Jesus, of course, when he came on the scene, silenced the demon immediately on the spot. And when the disciples later inquired of him why they could not cast out the demon, Jesus responded, and he said, this kind cannot come out by anything but, what? Prayer. Prayer. Asking in faith. Jesus says to us in John 14, 14, 13, that whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. Jesus said in 14, 13, if you ask anything in my name, he said, I will do it. In another occasion in the Gospels, blind Bartimaeus, you remember, came before the Lord with this request. I want to regain my, what? Sight. And Jesus said unto him, your faith has made you well. And he immediately, the text says, received his sight. Now, my question for you is why is it that we applaud such a passage and passages, and yet when it comes to your trial, okay, we consider ourselves beyond hope, without faith, 
And we find ourselves, as I do at times, doubting God. In fact, I recall in Matthew 9.28, when two blind men approached Jesus, and Jesus asked them, do you believe I am able to do this? And they said to him, yes. Then he touched their eyes, saying, it shall be done according to your faith. And the text says they went away seeing and glorifying God. But Jesus said, do you believe I am able to do this? And this morning I want to ask you, what is the this for you? For the two blind men, they wanted to regain their sight And they came to Jesus and asked him. And he responded and asked them, Do you believe I am able to do this? I want to know as we come into worship, as we're in the context of trials, what is the this for you? What what trial, what burden? I mean, if I asked you the question, can God do anything? anything, many of you would respond with an affirmation. In other words, not can he make a rock so I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. But if we just said, can God do anything, you would be bound up in your, I trust your theology, and respond with an affirmation. And you'd say, yes, he can do anything. He's omnipotent. And yet, if I were to ask you about a personal matter, about an unbelieving wayward spouse about a difficult boss, about a difficult child, regarding a wayward grandchild, it is entirely possible that you would not respond with the same enthusiasm. What is the this for you? And so the question as we walk into the text is, how are we to deal with trials in a way that God is honored and we mature in our faith? Take that Bible this morning and open to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. And the first section that he deals with here, as you know, is the section of trials. And he tells us that there are several features to understand if you are to deal successfully with life's trials. And I guarantee you, as we've been saying the last couple of weeks, he's got you somewhere that you can't fix. He's got a situation that you can't control. You've got a situation, what James says, count it all joy when you encounter these various trials. There's something in your life that isn't quite workable. Whether it's your finances, whether it's unemployment, whether it's a marriage that is not quite at peace and harmony, whether you're facing some serious illness, whether you're facing a health issue, you're, you're, maybe you're dealing with a bout of cancer, maybe you're dealing with the loss of a loved one, maybe there's a disappointment. James calls these, these various trials. How do you respond to those? We begin to click those off, and I have them on the PowerPoint. Number one, your response We just said it there, count it to all joy. You're to respond, and I am to respond with an attitude of joy. The rationale for that response is in verse 3, that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. 
or the idea of endurance. In other words, that ability to remain under the weight. So the reason for the trial is he's producing Christian character in you. The resolve, thirdly, your response, you need to have a resolve. Verse 4, where it says there, let steadfastness have its full effect. And I titled that your resolve because you're commanded to let endurance or let steadfastness have its full effect. In other words, you can disobey that commandment and completely blunt the very purpose that God brought to you in the trial. And I think I would promise you that if you blunt that purpose and do not remain under the trial, he will return the trial in another time, in another place, in another scenario, with another face, so that you and I learn our lesson. He's about your holiness, not about your happiness. So here, the rationale is he's producing this hupomene in me, the ability like the weightlifter to remain under. And you're commanded to let that steadfastness have its perfect result. We clicked off number four there. Your response is your reward in life's trials. When you obey that command, you can see it, that you'll be perfect, not sinful, not sinless, but mature, teleos, you'll be complete, you'll be whole, and then you'll be deficient in nothing. And so James, to add to that, just says lacking in nothing. But we said there's times, and we left off here, where you quite don't understand what God's doing. We don't understand the tapestry that he's weaving all the time. So we get to that point, and we left off last week on your request in life's trials. Pick up that text. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Here's the request. is You find yourself in a trial. You need to pray. I was on the phone with a friend last night in the midst of deep trial, a pastor. You know, I'm trying to get ready, and the Lord just, I think, wanted me to encourage this young man. And after a little bit of time, I just said, let's stop and let's pray. Let's beg God for wisdom. Let's request him for wisdom in the midst of your trial. And we prayed. Some things entered into our heart of some direction that he might need to take his leadership team on. And I believe the Lord was giving wisdom right on the spot simply because we asked God. And here James says, you remember, ask the giving God. In other words, James says in verse 5, ask God who gives. And here in the context, he's going to give you wisdom. He's going to put your knowledge alongside application so that you'll know what to do in the midst of the trial. Our God, James says, is a giving God. He gives to all men. In other words, he doesn't just give to people who are in Christian service. He gives to all of you sitting here this morning. There's no partiality with God. If you ask him for wisdom, James is very clear that he gives generously. He gives liberally. He gives unconditionally. And he will give you that wisdom, the text says, without reproach. He will never reproach you. He will never demean you. He will never humiliate you. He will never scold you. He will give you the wisdom you ask for. He will give it to you generously. He will give it to you without reproach. And we looked finally and we said the promises in verse 5 that it will be given him. You will be given wisdom and knowledge and application of that knowledge to see your trial from God's perspective. I mean, and you get there to the verse 5 and you're thinking, what possibilities in prayer do we have in the Scripture? Just ask. And then the question would come, is that all I have to do? Is just ask? 
I mean, is God some kind of celestial soda machine, Coke machine? You just put in the quarter and out comes the request. Just ask and out comes the wisdom of God. Well, in one sense, yes, because it's a problem. It's a promise. But in another sense, definitely not. Prayer that is effective and prayer that is successful must be marked by faith without the absence of doubt. Let him, look at verse 6, ask in faith without any doubting. Now, just a little footnote here. I think it's fascinating that what is being tested in trials, and let me just frame this. I'd ask you, what is being tested in your trial? You're being tested, and then the question would be, what is being tested? Now, you might, what would you say? I mean, you say, well, I, I got the trial. No, not, not the trial, but what's being tested in it? I mean, you, you're in a trial probably at some point right now that, because this is what the Lord draws and traces up on our dial. What is being tested? I'll direct you back to the text. Look at verse 3. Knowing, for you know, verse 3, that the testing of your, what? Faith. Your faith is being tested. Now, you, you say, well, Scott, what faith is that? That is not the, the, the theological kind of faith that we talked about in 1 John, believing in God and believing in Christ and believing that Christ came in the flesh. Those are what I would call doctrinal truths that our faith is grounded in. Here, the faith is your trust in God your dependence in God. So watch this. He's got you in a a trial. He is stretching your faith like a rubber band. He wants you to grow, to be more like Jesus Christ. He's testing your faith. And, And what I note there is that though he's testing your faith, through the trial, in verse six, he wants you to ask him in what? Faith. So it's an interesting way the Lord's going to grow us. So I bring you here to this next feature. You can see it is your requirement in life's trials. So there is something that is required of you. Certainly the request is an open one to you. Ask and it will be given. But here's the requirement. It's faith. And so James takes us from the quantity of God's giving in verse 5 to the sincerity of your asking in verse 6, okay? Now, in this requirement in life's trials, I'm going to just make it real simple, okay? There's a condition that is commanded, okay? And then there is a doubter that is described. A condition that he commands and a doubter that he describes. Let's look first at the condition commanded. The condition commanded. Pick up the text with me, verse 6. But let him ask in faith. So here, stop there. Praying in faith is praying with the belief that you will receive exactly what you have asked for. And in this context... You are praying for the what? The wisdom that comes from above. Obviously, we're not into that, the charismatic theology, the name it and claim it. Stay with me in the text. The request in the trial is for wisdom. And when you ask for wisdom in verse 6, you've got to ask 
in faith, and you've got to believe that you will receive exactly what you've asked for. You say, what is faith? And what is the this for you? Do you believe I'm be able to do this? Faith is confident trust in God's character. It's trust in His promises. And it's trust in His purposes. When you place your faith in God and in Christ, you're trusting the very character of God. You're trusting the promises that come from the Scripture. You're trusting the purposes of God. And the greatest enemy to answered prayer is unbelief. And so the true prayer is a prayer of faith. Now, some believers simply doubt that God will give them what they need. And in this case, what you and I need is wisdom. I mean, it's so very easy to rationalize believing prayer away. You might feel, I am so undeserving. I could never ask him, and that may well be true, but it's irrelevant for the text. You may feel, I'm so even unworthy even to ask. You may think your trial is not worthy for God's time and attention. Some maybe in this context are even disputing with God, wondering how a good God could allow such a deep trial in the first place. Listen, any request that does not take God at his word, trusting in his promises, trusting in his power, is to doubt his very character. So enough for me to say to you, there is no acceptable prayer without faith. You say, what is faith? Well, from Hebrews, it says, you know it, faith is is the assurance of things, what? Hoped for, And the conviction of things, what? Not seen. Faith is a confidence, listen, in both God's ability and God's willingness to answer your request for wisdom in trials. You say, well, Scott, how important is faith in prayer? Well, you well know that Hebrews 11, 6 says, without faith, it is impossible to what? Please God. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. So faith again here is not so much doctrinal truth. Rather, it's dependent, a dependence upon God. What faith is, is it a refusal to panic in the midst of the trials and it clings to the purposes. It clings to the promises of God. So you ask for wisdom in faith. Look at the text in verse 6. It says, with no, what? Doubting. Diocrinomai is the word. You ask him in faith without any doubting. What this means is you are to ask God for wisdom without a divided mind. And there, that, that phrase there, without Doubting literally means a divided mind, but it's the ideal of being torn in two directions. In other words, you're oscillating back and forth between faith in God and your circumstances, faith in God and your emotions. In fact, that same word is used in Acts 10.30, where, where there the writer says, do not hesitate. 
So if you're asking in faith, you've got to ask without doubting. You can't hesitate on the character of God. I'm thinking of Abraham in Romans 4.20 with respect to the promise of God. He did not waver in unbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. The idea is there is that's that same word, he did not waver, is that he did not dispute, he did not debate the matter, he trusted God in his heart. So here's the condition commanded, to ask in faith without any doubting. But if you doubt, the text, the text tells us something very important. Look again at verse 6. He says, for the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. I'm taking from the condition commanded, secondly, to the doubter described. If you, if you doubt, James says you'll be like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. If you, Grace Church of the Valley, doubt God's ability to answer your prayer, then you have become a doubter. Look at the text again. You have become, it says here, like a wave of the sea. I think the New American Standard says, like the surf of the sea. Now, just like there's different words in the Greek language to express love, there's different words to express waves and surf of the sea. And here, this, the idea of being tossed and driven is a graphic illustration of the constant unrest of the doubting soul. And here the wave is not referring to an individual wave. It's referring to a succession of waves. It's referring to a massive swell, if you will, that comes in. And here it comes into the soul. And so the picture here is of the sea that's just kind of whipped around with white caps by the wind. And the unstable believer here, because he or she does not trust God, is blown all over the place. In other words, the doubter, James says, is completely out of control, if you will. you, You remember back in the Gospels that it was doubt that made Peter sink in the waves. Do you remember as he was walking to Jesus in Matthew chapter 14 and He began to walk on the water. But remember, as he took his sight off the Lord Jesus Christ and he began to see the swelling sea rising up, he began to what? To sink. And Jesus said to him in the King James language, O thou of little, what? Faith. Wherefore didst thou doubt? He doubted. While he was setting his eyes on Christ, he's walking on the water. But when he looked around him and saw the sea and saw the swells, he began to sink and said, Jesus, save me, I am perishing. And Jesus gently said to him, Oh, thou of little faith, why did you doubt? Why did you doubt? Listen, when he was distracted, he became double-minded and he almost drowned, if you will. Now that word, look back in verse 6 when it says there, that he is driven, and then it mentions that word tossed, driven and tossed by the wind is ripzamenos, the word tossed. I'm not sure if we get our, our term riptide from it, but it's the thought here that when you begin to doubt God, and, and again, I just want to encourage you, this is not a history lesson. I'm speaking to my heart, I'm speaking to your heart. 
I'm speaking to my trial. I'm speaking to your trial. You have them. And when you begin to doubt God and doubt his ability and doubt his promises to give you the wisdom, here James says that you will become like a sea that is driven and tossed. And the idea, you're going to get caught in a riptide and you're going to be torn all over the place. I've been in those growing up in Southern California. I used to fight them when I was young, just swimming hard. Man, the, the ocean would just be sucking me out. And it was right after the movie Jaws came out. You know, and it'd just be sucking me out. And you just, when you're young, you just, no, I'm just going to just paddle, paddle, paddle. You do it all in your own strength. But as I got a little older, I stopped fighting them because when you fight them, you get real tired. So I just get carried way out. The riptide would go away and I swim back in. But sometimes what happens is we find ourselves in the midst of a trial and we get tossed and driven. In fact, it reminds me of the description of Paul in Ephesians 4.14 when he says about the false teachers and being grounded in the word that you may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. So listen, these trials are coming to you, they're coming to me, and they're like hurricanes, if you will, off the Florida coast, okay? Do you ever ever realize as you walk through the years, they give names to all those, don't they? There was Hurricane Andrew, then there was Hurricane Ivan, and they give all those hurricane names. Well, let's give yours a name. It's called Hurricane Doubt. You've come into a place God is ever wanting to grow you. God is ever wanting you to to become more like Jesus Christ. He's ever wanting to perfect the image of Jesus Christ in you. He's ever wanting you not to remain a spiritual baby, but to grow up and to be complete. He so wants your character and my character to be lacking in nothing. But if you lack wisdom and you do lack wisdom, let him ask of God. But when you ask God, you need to ask in faith without any doubting. Because if you doubt, you're going to be like the sea driven and tossed by the wind. You're going to have a hurricane and it's going to be called hurricane doubt. And it's going to shake your heart. And these trials, if you're not careful to place your trust in God, will toss you all over the place. And here, the doubter James pictures here is insecure as a hurricane tossing a tiny boat in a turbulent sea. And James' description of a doubting Christian is like a bobbing cork on a raging sea torn apart by these competing desires. I can't help but think that some believers live like a bobbing cork. Up one minute, down in the dumps in the next wave. See, faith at times says yes to the promises of God. And unbelief says, I am not so sure I can trust God. Faith and doubt, James says, can't reside in man at the same time. Listen, when you believe, you do not doubt. And when you doubt, you do not believe. And so doubt cuts off the divine blessing of wisdom in prayer. Say, so, well, what happens to this person? Well, look at the text in verse 7. For the, that person, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. In other words, prayer is stripped of its power 
And God will, in fact, withhold wisdom from anyone like this particular person. And rather than growing to maturity, instability begins to run wild in your life, and prayer goes unanswered. Now, there's some question. Look at verse 7. For that person, I think the New American Standard says, for that man or for this man must not expect. But the question is, who is that man? Who is that person? Well, I believe that person could be you this morning, right? And then the question, well, he's talking to an unbeliever. I don't think so. I think he's talking to the people whom he wrote to. And I think the Spirit of God, by the Word of God, is talking to you. In fact, Hughes says the phrase, that man, the commentator, is a believer. He has received eternal life. Hughes says he's indwelt by the Spirit of God, but his doubting, unstable, vacillating vacillating life means that he will get no wisdom to help handle his troubles. Now, the reason we do not receive, obviously, what we ask for does not lie in God. He just said that he gives generously, but we doubt as we pray, right? And so omnipotence of God, knows no restraint, but it is held back by our unbelief. Remember when it says of Jesus in Mark 6 that he could not do any miracles there, and it says that he was amazed at their lack of faith, Mark 6. He could not do any miracles. Now listen, he could not because he would not Not because of any lack of power in him, but because of the hearts of the people. Do you remember when the father came with the possessed child and said, Teacher, if you can do anything, help us. And Christ answered and said inquisitively, If you can, everything is possible for him who believes. And the the discouraged father said, if you can do anything, and our Lord says, if you can, as if he said to, do not doubt my power. Listen, I can, Jesus says, if you can, and if we are prepared to receive what God wants to give, we would not be long without an answer. If we receive not, it is not because of any lack, Manton said, because of God's power, but because we lack faith in ourselves. So look what he says in verse 7. That person must not suppose that he'll receive anything from the Lord. In verse 8, being a, look what it says, you read it, a double-minded man, unstable in what? All his ways. That phrase He is a double-minded man. You say, well, what does that mean? Well, it's an interesting word. You'll get it. It's the word double-minded is just simply the Greek word dipsuko. Suko just means two, right, or soul. And dipsuko attached to it just means two-souled, two-souled. Is, is what the phrase means. It means to be double-hearted, okay? We might call 
that today, maybe, maybe this isn't a great analogy. We might say when someone lacks integrity that they're not two-souled, but they're two, what? Two-faced. And so here, the doubting believer is trying to serve two masters, and it's as though one part of her says, I believe, and the other cries out and says, I doubt. And you become two-souled. I call this spiritual schizophrenia, okay? Where, where these personalities are, it's probably not a good word, are in constant conflict with one another. And one is Godward, in which they trust, and the other one is fleshward, if you will. In fact, Barclay in his commentary graphically said of the one doubting that he or she is a walking civil war in which trust and distrust of God wage a continual battle with each other. I mean, this is just like Peter walking on the water one moment, fixed on Christ, and then overwhelmed by a circumstance and his doubt, and he sinks, and Jesus says, O ye of little faith, why did you, what? Doubt. John Bunyan, I don't know if you've ever read that book, Pilgrim's Progress, but when I read that Spurgeon had read the book over a hundred times, I thought it's probably a good book to read, right? You think if a guy like Spurgeon would read a book a hundred times, you ought to read Pilgrim's Progress. But Bunyan in that work described this man as Mr. Facing Both Ways. Mr. Facing Both Ways. In other words, he's like the mythological horseman who mounted his horse and rode off in four directions all at the same time. It's like Elijah in 1 Kings to you in 18 when he said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow Him. But if Baal, then follow him. But stop hesitating between two opinions. See, if you get caught in this, you could become like lukewarm Laodicea and love it. Where where there the writer John said, because you are lukewarm and you are neither hot nor cold, I will, what? Spit you out of my mouth. See, James just helping us. He's growing us. That doubting is fatal to effective prayer. Listen, body, you cannot have divided affections. Sometimes thinking God will hear an answer, and other times just losing all hope, and I'm just so unworthy. And I, listen, you've got to trust Him. You've got to trust Him. Look again at verse 8. It says there, that he's a double-minded man. This is what gets me. I don't know why. He's not done. He says that he's unstable in what? All his ways. Unstable means unsettled. Unsteady. Okay? That, that's the ideal of the word. It means inconsistent. Paul uses that adjective unstable in 1 Corinthians 14.33 to speak of confusion. And you become confused 
in the midst of your request regarding the character and the promises of God. Now, you'll note the text, right? The text is the power. He is a two-souled, dipsuko-minded man or woman, unstable in all his, what, ways. It's not just your trial. It's not just the one issue. You have as a habitual course of action an uneasiness in all your ways. It's not only a faith and prayer that is lacking, but every facet of your life is doubting, and it makes you undecided and undecided at home, undecided at church, undecided at work. And you may put on a real good veneer here. A real good one. And hopelessness can set in. And despair sets in. And instability sets in. So much so that your whole life is affected to the point of finally, at times, losing it all in loose living and in open sin. In fact, look over to James chapter 4. We'll get there in a few weeks. 4, 8. It's the only other place. I think the word dipsuko is only used twice, if I'm right. James 4, 8, draw near to God. He will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you, what? Double-minded. So the requirement stated for life's trials is let them ask in faith without any doubting is the thoughts. And this does not mean, beloved, I encourage you here, that your faith is perfect. It doesn't mean that you've got perfect faith any more than a singer we might say has perfect pitch remember our lord helped the distraught father in mark 9 24 remember when he said do you believe and the father said i believe but help my what unbelief that's legitimate i'm i'm thinking of our lord and and this is to encourage us (laughs) when he reproved their disciples for their unbelief at the resurrection And it says in Mark 16, 14, that he appeared to the 11 and he reproached them for their unbelief and hardness of heart because they had not believed those who had seen him after he had risen. I mean, he appeared and they were saying, no, you haven't seen him. These were guys that had been with him three years and I I think maybe we can start a little club next week at Grace Church of the Valley. Do you want to get in it? It's called the OE of Little Faith Club. Maybe we should just start that one. The, the one scripture that, 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 that gets me, look over to Romans. It, it's Abraham. And every time I turn to Romans, I'm thinking, Booker, did you cover this? But in, in, in Romans 4, amazing text there. And it's talking about Abraham, okay? In, and you know the account. I can't go into all of it. But in verse 18, in hope, 418, he believed against hope, Right? Now, he did. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. And as he said, so this offering, so your offspring shall be. Now, you'll note that Paul just says in hope, he believed against hope. But when God told him that you as a hundred-year-old man and your 90-year-old wife will give birth, he, what did he do? He laughed. Now, 
He's growing in his faith. But then look at 4, is it 4.19? He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. And when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew, I like this phrase, strong in faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able, there's his omnipotence, to do what he had, what? Promised. Now, I love that phrase there. He was fully convinced that God was able to do. Fully assured what God had promised. Fully in conviction that he was able to perform it. And you say fully assured of what? I think Abraham's assurance here is grounded in the belief here with Isaac, that if he killed Isaac, that God could raise him from what? The dead. I mean, these are just marvelous statements here regarding Abraham's faith. In hope against hope, it says he did not become weak in faith. He did not waver in unbelief. He grew strong. He gave glory to God being fully assured. Now, there was a time, was there not, in Abraham's faith, that it hit an open nerve, right, with Hagar. And, and we understand that. But when I look at this phrase, I see there was an ever-continuing, an ever-persisting, an ever-persevering faith that continued to shine. And Abraham overcame every obstacle to become fully assured in the promises of God. He was not perfect, but he grew strong in faith. So listen, James is not claiming that prayer will never be answered where any degree of doubt exists. For some degree of doubt on at least some occasions is probably inevitable in our present state of weakness. But he wants you to trust him. And I want to ask you again, what is the this? What is it that you need wisdom for? You might be a mom. You just might be overwhelmed. You just, you just, you don't even know how to raise this child or love this child or discipline this child. Let me just encourage you. If you pray for wisdom, God will give you that wisdom, won't he? You may be a man that's just overwhelmed by work, overwhelmed, how about this, by the future of our country, overwhelmed by Obamacare that's coming, okay? And you're just not quite sure what you can do. And you know, you come off real strong, but in your heart, you're real weak. And what you need to do is bow your knee and ask God for wisdom and he'll fulfill that request and give you wisdom. And in giving you wisdom, he'll give you your joy back. The worst testimony that I can be or that you can be is one of a joyless, prayerless Christian life. And you and I will instantly have joy fly out the door when you stop putting all your trust in God. You may be a single mom. You, you may come into the place. You may even have a tough time with Summerfest. It's all about the family. And you're just a single mom. Listen, I promise you, God will give you the wisdom you need to raise that child. He is a father to the what? To the fatherless. You get on your knees every night. You beg him for wisdom. He'll give you that wisdom. I think James wants to encourage us. He has never let you down. He will never let you down. You can trust him. Everything he's ever said, has it always come true? 
Always. There's not one piece of any part of the Word of God that has never been perfectly fulfilled. Everything that we look back on, every prophecy that was given in the future that was given in time came true. Not one thing has ever not been fulfilled. You could put your whole trust on Him. And what a great outlet that He says that if you ask God... You ask in faith. First, you can request for wisdom because you're on a maze and you're in this trial and you can't see through the trial, right? You're in the maze trying to find the right door and you're walking into this door and you're walking into that door and you just feel like you're running into dead ends and this trial and then my health fell here. Then God, this trial toppled on me over here. Then this child has a problem and then this grandchild and my first marriage and and all of a sudden you're just banging into walls. You just need to pray for God's wisdom, to be lifted above, to help you navigate through the doors. And that's what wisdom, he gives you knowledge and application of knowledge to apply it and he'll give it to you. He is so generous. He is so kind. He will give it to all of you. You say, oh, pastor, he won't give it to me. No, no, the the Bible says in James 1.5 that he gives to all men generously. You say, but pastor, I've done this and I've had this part of my life and I I live like this as an unsaved man or an unsaved woman. Listen, he will give it to you without restraint. He will give it to you without beating you. He will give it to you without demeaning you. He will never just say, hey, you abused my vice, never come back. He will never be like the father two weeks ago where the child came and said, "Can can I have some help for my homework? And the father said, no, you didn't listen to me the first time. God will never do that with you. Listen, you just come to him.